Father, thank you that this is your church, that you are our senior pastor, that Jesus is the head. Thank you that this body of believers doesn't belong to who gives the most money or who's the most outwardly talented or who's been here the longest or who has the most education or who even stands here on the platform the most often. God, we're a congregational church, so that means we are brothers and sisters who are equals under you, called to commit and invest in one another in such a way that the gospel is put on display. We don't have the strength to do that in and ourselves. We must submit to you, and as that song said, be on our knees in order that Christ would be magnified in us. And so we ask that you would please help us to do that. Grant us patience with each other. When things fall through the cracks, may we grow and be reminded of your goodness to us and that nothing ever falls through the cracks in your eyes. And we pray, Father, that as people step up into new various roles, whether they're on staff or volunteers, there's lots doing both of those things, that they would richly be blessed in that process and that your body would be equipped for the work of ministry so we can be built up in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so First John chapter 4. We have a couple of messages left in First John, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, there are a number of you who have been reading through First John with somebody in your gospel community or um, just another brother or sister here at church. Some of you are even reading through it regularly with people who don't come here and are not believers. All of those things are fantastic, just getting under the scriptures and, and listening and learning from each other. It's wonderful the way that you're doing that. One of the tools we're using to help people know how to go about that is this little book called One to One that we use in Disciple Makers. Someone who does not have one of these is willing to read it and would consider sitting down with the scriptures with somebody who would like that. Come on, Priscilla. Come on up here. I hope you're good. So one of the things I'm hearing from people as they're doing that is, geez, First John seems to say the same thing over and over and over and over. And sometimes when we get together, we can't figure out anything new to say because it feels like when we read it, we already heard that. Um, I can empathize with that feeling. There have been times I've sat down to work on a message and thought, oh, no, uh-oh, what am I going to do? But John, what he does is he writes cyclically. So he'll take a point, he'll say something about it, he'll move on to another one, and then he'll go back to that one and he'll push a little bit deeper. And if you look long enough and slow down and pray, then what you'll find is each time he does that, he presses deeper into that same idea with an additional truth. And we'll see that today as we consider love. We've already talked about love a lot, but we're going to look at a new element of it today. John talks about love more than any other author in the scriptures. He was absolutely consumed by the love of Christ. It's all he could think about. It seems like every other word he's talking about the love of God in Christ for him. I want to be like John when I grow up. It's a great trait that he has. Today, he's going to address this question. What does God's love in Christians provide? 
What, what is it that when we are people who have experienced the love of God, that that love works in us to produce certain things? It provides certain things in us. What is it that God accomplishes? Well, that's 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. Let's look at it together. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also are we in the world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John gives us one big idea today. It's that God's love in Christians provides us with three things. First, it gives us a glorious assurance of his presence. The promise that that God is with us. That's what his love does. Second, it gives us a confidence in the coming judgment. Confidence in the coming judgment. And finally, it gives us the ability to love genuinely. So God's love in Christians provides glorious assurance of his presence, confidence in coming judgment, and the ability to love genuinely. Let's take those piece by piece. We'll get to as many of them as we can. First, God's love in Christians provides glorious assurance that he's with us. Now, give me three or four minutes to explain some background to you, and then I want to see if we can flesh it out into daily life. If, if you're here today and you're new to the Bible, we're thrilled uh, that you're here. I mentioned this already, but there's uh, Bibles at the back in the coffee bar. When you leave, if you'd like to take one, you don't have one, grab it and go. It's our gift to you. The first two-thirds or so of your Bible is called the Old Testament. And the, the latter third is called the New Testament. All right? Old and new. The Old Testament or Old Covenant isn't called that because it's older. It's, it's not called that because it's somehow aged. It's called that because it's a covenant that has been replaced. It's been fulfilled by a newer one, a better one. It's called the old covenant because of Jesus. So what makes it new and better? Well, let me tell you. One of the greatest blessings in the Old Testament, so that first two-thirds of the Bible, before Jesus left heaven and came to earth, one of the greatest blessings anyone ever experienced was the active enabling presence of God with them. The active enabling presence of God with them. Remember that God is a triune God. He's one God, three persons. Yes, that sounds nuts. Uh, it, it, it's in inexplainable in its fullest sense, but it's without a doubt what the scriptures teach. That God is God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, 
Not every follower of God had the Holy Spirit with him or her all the time. That's why it was such a big deal when God would say about someone, I am with you. So people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Joshua, these believers and many more were told that they had the Holy Spirit with them. What made these heroes of the Old Testament people that we're still talking about wasn't their great personalities. It wasn't the education they had. It wasn't their personal power of persuasion. It wasn't their good looks. What made these people used by God tremendously for good was one simple thing. God was with them. That's why their stories are in the scriptures. That's why the world is different because they lived, because God was in them. So let me give you one example. Moses single-handedly led God's people out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land of Israel. One person. Anybody go to see that movie this weekend? New movie out about that very thing. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, the better thing to do would be to read Exodus. It will tell you exactly what happened. For 40 years, what happened is uh, Moses met with God and Moses was changed and Moses then met with the people of God and they met with God, therefore. And that cycle repeated itself over and over and over. And after 40 years, the Israelites got right up to the edge of the Jordan River where they were going to cross into the land that God had promised to give them. And that land was always a picture of God's presence and his blessing upon us and those of you that know the story what happened to moses he kicked the bucket right there didn't get to go in so the next person in line to lead was a guy named joshua now imagine stepping into those shoes for 40 plus years one person has been appointed by god to lead god's people and they have had Tremendous things happen to them. They have learned what it looks like to live as the people of God. That's what that crazy book of Leviticus is about. God's people set apart because God is with them. He's dwelling in the tent among them. That would be a tough assignment, would it not? I imagine Joshua had to be a little bit intimidated. God goes right up to Joshua and he says, Joshua, what Moses didn't lead the people to do, you're going to do. Can't you just hear Joshua? God, can't we just ease into this transition plan? Uh, This is my first day on the job. That's a bit of a big assignment. But then God tells him this. This is Joshua 1, verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Just as I, God, was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. That was all Joshua needed. The size of the task is inconsequential if the God of the universe is with you. In the Old Testament, God would be with certain people at certain times in particular ways for particular tasks. But now let's fast forward into the New Testament. Things get a whole lot better. A whole lot better. 
Okay, so we just jumped 1,200 years. Joshua has led the people in the promised land for 12 centuries. God's presence has come and gone because of rampant sin and then repentance in the heart of Israel. And in comes Jesus, God himself with humanity, as humanity. Now, it seemed like this was going to be the very pinnacle of God's plan. Jesus there with God's people forever. That's what they expected to happen. And right before Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, he prayed a shocking prayer. I imagine the disciples, when they heard it, didn't understand, nor would, have they, nor would they have believed if they did understand it. Here's what he prayed. John 14. I ask the Father that he will give you another helper. Who was the first helper? He was. So he's praying to the Father. Father, would you provide for your people by giving them another helper? Someone like me who will bless them. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. And here's why I've told you everything up to this point I've said today. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus stunningly says, God himself. So the third person of the Trinity. There will be a day when he's no longer merely with you for particular tasks. He'll be in you. And he'll be in you forever. From the moment you accept the gospel on, God's presence with God's people. Christians, God's not just with you. He's in you. Now, so what? Well, brothers and sisters, remember who God is. This is the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign Lord, the one who knows everything, who has all power, who can do anything he wants to do, who's perfect all the time, whose resources are endless. He says, I put my spirit in you. Your most significant obstacles are just pebbles to him. They're nothing. They're tools he uses to break your arrogant self-dependence in order that you would trust in him and find that life is better like that. He knows what you need and will provide it. So that means that God does not just stand at a distance and say, I love you. He's inside of you. And he says, I'm with you always. And I love you more than you can ever imagine. And nothing that ever comes your way, nothing will not be used by that God to make you more like Christ. That means that what Moses had and Joshua had and Abraham had and Isaac had is not as good as what you have. That's amazing. Friends, what we need far more than the absence of hardship and suffering, what we need more than physical healing or better jobs or bigger apartments or a spouse or a different spouse or kids or no kids or better bodies, nicer degrees, kinder teachers, 
What we need more than even the best the world has to offer is the presence of God. And if you have trusted Christ, God says, you have me. Now, let's be clear. If you go get a CT scan or an MRI tomorrow and you tell the radiologist, the preacher says there's the spirit in me and I want to see it because I don't think I believe him. You're not going to see anything. Right? We're talking about spiritual realities, but that doesn't make them any less real than the physical. He's a spirit, so he can't be seen. The doc is going to think you're nuts. You can't see him, but that doesn't mean he's not there. Jesus compared him to the wind. He said, you can't see the wind blowing, and the wind blows wherever it chooses, but golly, can you see the effects of it? Others have compared him to radio waves. Radio waves are everywhere. Two people can be in the exact same room. If one has the right equipment, he or she can listen to music and enjoy it richly. The other, if they're not aware, is still in the same room but is experiencing a different reality. So it is with the Spirit. And the Spirit does not listen to country music. Now, how do we know... The Spirit is in us and He's working. How do we know that? How do we know that we know that we know? Well, let me give you a few ways. Um, Some churches say that you have to speak in tongues. If you really have the Spirit, then you'll you'll babble about in words that are unintelligible. The Scriptures do not teach that. Some churches would tell you that you've got to experience what is called a second blessing. So you you become a Christian, and then later you get a big massive pile of the Spirit poured on top of you, and everything's different then. The Scriptures don't say that either. Still other churches will say if you're not physically healed, or you have spiritual deficiencies, or you, you have a lack of resources, then you don't have the Spirit. And when you do, then you have the Spirit. You're probably catching the pattern. Scriptures don't say that either. The Bible itself has to be our guide to understand what God is doing. So the Scriptures tell us specifically how do we know we have the Spirit. One of the ways it tells us in Galatians is look at our character. Is your character marked by traits increasingly like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you more described like that than you were a few years ago? If so, that's the the result of the Spirit making you more Christ-like. Another way we can know is, is experientially. Have you ever had a thought that was much more wise and holy and true just pop into your head? Seemingly out of nowhere. And you wanted to take credit for it, but you knew you shouldn't. That's the Spirit. The Spirit prompts the people of God to do good things. That's the Spirit guiding you and giving you reassurance. But the reason we're talking about all this is because what John said today. Let's look at it again. Verse 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son into the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And here's what He says. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's pretty plain, Jane, simple. How do you know that the Spirit has come to live in you? Friends, do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Do you believe that he came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again? If you not only assent to those facts as historical truths, but you trust in them, in the person behind them, then you have the Spirit. The gospel is ridiculous to people without the Spirit of God, but it's the most precious truth in the entire world to those who have Him. The Christian life is a life of growing, of learning how to live and listen to the source of God's life in us. But that doesn't come easily. God says we're transformed through the renewing of our minds as the Spirit guides us into all truth. So I'd like to make a couple suggestions for you for how to learn to live by the Spirit that lives inside of us. The first one I think should be really obvious. But live, be often in the Scriptures. The Spirit breathed the words of God as the human authors wrote these words down. They've been miraculously preserved. Not so that we can know principles, but so that we can know a person. So that we can love God and know Him and walk with Him. Be often in the Bible and you'll find you're experiencing the Spirit more often because the Spirit speaks God's Word. And that naturally leads into prayer. Talk with God. That's simply what prayer is. It's visiting with God. Jill and I are reading a a book right now on prayer by Timothy Keller. Here's the way he defines or talks about prayer. Prayer is awe, intimacy, struggle, yet the way to reality. There's absolutely, there's nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. There's absolutely nothing so great as prayer. Pray. God will guide you as you pray. Number three, be quick to repent of your sin and confess it to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are trusted in relationship, that are committed believers. The Spirit, one of His roles is to convict us of sin. And every time He does that, it is not God beating you. It is God giving you a gift. He's saying, you've been trusting in, looking to, finding fulfillment in this thing that you think will help you, but it's just a little sip of poison. I'm better. Set the sin aside. Trust in me. Walk in my forgiveness. And the more we do that, friends, the more richer life becomes because we experience more of God at work in our lives. And the more we don't pretend before each other, but we're honest about our struggles, then the more we find we're not the only ones with struggles and we encourage each other as brothers and sisters and we grow. Two more. I want to encourage you to say yes when you think you may have been prompted by God to do something. Now, 
if you're in the Scriptures and you've been praying and you're confessing any known sin and in community with other believers, then hopefully the, the really weird ideas you get that are not from God, you'll know these aren't from God. And how do you know that? Well, they'll contradict what's in here. How do you know if God may be prompting you to say something or pursue someone or do some act of kindness? Well, is it in accordance with God's word? Are you not so already, already so overspent in every area that you have nothing left to give? And does it seem like something Jesus would do? Well, if the answer to those questions are yes, then it's probably the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit will move you away from selfishness into servanthood. He will push you out of arrogance and towards humility. He'll prompt you to do good to others and speak the gospel to them. That's the tremendous privilege we have. God does His work through His Word in the people of God. That's how things happen. That's how people come to know Him and live for Him. So the more my experience has been, the more I say no to those little promptings, the more infrequent they become. The more I say yes, the more often it tends to happen. And I'm not talking about hearing voices. I'm just talking about, huh, a person comes to mind. I should send them a note. That person in Starbucks looks like they're lonely. Maybe I ought to engage them in a conversation. Simple, everyday disciple making. That's what the Spirit will lead you to do. And finally, I want to encourage you to slow down to rest and listen and reflect. Slow down to rest, listen, and reflect. I love music. A lot of movies are great. A little Netflix every now and then can be an appropriate part of leisure. But if we're not careful, there is constant noise in our lives. And that constant noise deafens our ability to listen and hear from the Spirit of God. So find a way in community to be quiet and to listen. Friends, in our particular cultural setting, your greatest enemy to a stronger spiritual life is your refusal to turn off the noise. It's the refusal to quiet and listen. In the same book I referenced a few minutes ago, Tim Keller says this, If we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. We will have increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, we will lack integrity. Unless we put a priority on the inner life, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. Christian, you'll be far more assured of God's presence with you If you slow down, and when you slow down, you're not deafening your mind with Netflix or liking things on Facebook, but sitting with the Savior, enjoying the company of other believers, and saying yes when God prompts you to do things. And non-Christian in the room, 
The glorious promise of God to you is that you too can have that kind of life. You don't have to earn it. You simply have to recognize your sin, believe in Christ, and trust and confess upon Him. What does God's love provide Christians? His love gives us assurance of His presence with us forever. The other two will have to wait for some other time. Let me pray. Father, what we need most is the presence of God in our lives. That presence can be possible, not merely around us, but in us, because Jesus came, died, and rose again. And our sin can be taken from us and put upon Him. And His righteousness can be placed upon us. And therefore, when you, Father, look at us as believers, not because, literally, not because of anything we've done, all because of what Christ has done. You regard us as your sons and your daughters. And you give us the tremendous honor and privilege of being the the, the temple of Christ. God's presence in us all the time. We need rely more upon you in us. Would you guide us in that? We also pray, Father, that as we say yes to you, that you would speak and that we would be a people zealous for good deeds. A people that display the gospel and how we treat each other. And that you use that, Father, to draw people who don't know you that more could enjoy this rich life with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.